Hey Art, do you like jelly beans? Eh, they're okay, but why do you ask? Well, since I was a kid, whenever I get jelly beans, I always sort them into their different colors, and then I decide which order I want to taste them, you know, so I can kind of combine the flavors and eat them in a particular order. I do the same thing. <laughs> I think we as humans are great at categorizing our worlds into these, like, sort of nested subsets. Yeah, take some foods that you see regularly at the grocery store. Cherries are, well, cherries, but they're also stone fruits, which includes plums and apricots. And stone fruits are part of a larger grouping that we call simply fruits. The problem, of course, is that these categories can lead to confusion, especially once you start thinking carefully about where they come from and what their boundaries are. For example, is a bell pepper a fruit or a vegetable? Most of us would say vegetable, but of course, technically it's a fruit because it's a seed-containing reproductive structure. I think the same is true of tomatoes, also a fruit. So perhaps a biological misclassification there, even if it's perfectly appropriate based on things you might cook or eat together. In many ways, species suffer from exactly the same problems. Yep. Most of us characterize species in the same way that Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously characterized pornography in 1964. Quote, I know it when I see it. For example... We know that a starling is a starling when we see it because eh, it's more or less distinct from other medium-sized blackish birds out there. And a giraffe is a giraffe because it's got long legs, a long neck, and the right kind of spots. Again, distinct from everything else out there. This I-know-it-when-I-see-it approach suffers from at least two major problems. The first is that our visually based categories often misrepresent groups based on other reasonable ways of putting them together such as whether or not individuals in the group can mate with one another or whether they share DNA sequences that are closely related enough. For example, what we used to call just giraffes have recently been recategorized into eight or more species based on combinations of morphology, ecology, and genetic evidence. Turns out this is common. We find out that what we thought was one species is actually a cryptic species complex. The second problem is that biologists have described only a fraction of the biodiversity on Earth. Indeed, it's possible that most biodiversity still remains to be discovered, and that traditional ways of doing taxonomy, which involve careful observations and description, may be moving too slowly in the face of anthropogenic disruptions and a looming extinction crisis. Today on the show, we talk about species, how to identify them, and how many there are with Michael Sharkey, a retired professor from the University of Kentucky and director of the Hymenoptera Institute. In his career, Michael has worked mostly on the taxonomy and biodiversity of braconid wasps, a large group of species that make their living as parasitoids, in which wasp larvae grow up inside other insects. A major inspiration for the bad guys in the Alien franchise. Although he started out doing traditional taxonomy based on morphology, he later started adding information from DNA sequences. In particular, he used what's called molecular barcoding, which treats the sequence of the cytochrome oxidase 1 gene like a scannable barcode on that red pepper fruit in your grocery basket. That genetic barcode lets you assign individuals to known species groups or can suggest that it's part of something new. A few years ago, Michael and colleagues published several papers that caused a big stir among taxonomists. In a 2021 paper, he and co-authors described over 400 new species of braconid wasps from Costa Rica based essentially on barcodes and photographs alone. To put it mildly, many taxonomists were not amused. In multiple journal articles, the pushback was pretty intense. 
In the show today, we talk with Michael about this controversy, along with a host of fundamental questions about the diversity of life on Earth. These include, what is a species? How many species of insects are there on Earth? And how do we know? And also, what's the best and most efficient way to describe new species rapidly, especially before they go extinct due to climate and land use changes? Along the way, we learn some surprising facts about the basics of biodiversity. For example, it turns out that God is only reasonably fond of beetles, with inordinate fondness reserved for flies. Think of that next time you find a maggot in your plum. I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology. Michael Sharkey, thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. We're going to talk about some, I think, profoundly interesting issues today about what species are, how much biodiversity there is in the world, some controversies about how one should go about doing taxonomy and figuring out what levels of biodiversity are in different places and among different groups of, of organisms. So, Michael, I think one of the groups of wasps that we'll talk a lot about today are the uh, Braconidae, or what we call Braconids. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Braconids and how they're different from other kinds of wasps? Okay. Um, well, in, in the Hymenoptera, you have termed by lay people uh, bees, wasps, and ants, and sawflies. What I work with are called parasitic Hymenoptera, and that's about... 70% of all wasps are parasitoid uh, wasps. And this includes the Braconids. And what they do is they lay their eggs on top of, or usually inside of, other insects and arthropods. And those eggs then develop and consume and kill the host insect or other arthropod. So that's what Braconids do. They mostly attack um, beetles and um, caterpillars, caterpillars of moths and butterflies. So they're um, very important in controlling other insects. Uh, they're typically used in biological control. So if there's a pest outbreak in a uh, orange grove, for example, they may release braconids, among other uh, hypenopterans, to attack the, the pest insects, whatever they might be. I had a couple of follow-up questions about just the, the parasitoid lifestyle. So I've, I've seen a lot of parasitism in my own work, um, working on caterpillars of different kinds, and especially in, in the southwestern U.S. And it feels like parasitoid wasps are one of the main sources of mortality, along with some some parasitoid flies. Just walk us through this this parasite or parasitoid life cycle. It's just fascinating to me, things like you know, how do the how do the female wasps find the host to oviposit into? How do they defeat the host's immune system? Like, how does the wasp larva grow up inside the host? Well, we'll talk um, perhaps about. I mean, there's, there's so many variations in that. I'll, I'll give you um, one generalized example. So, how do they find their host? Well, typically, parasitoid wasps are fairly host specific. So they're going to be feeding on, in this case, a caterpillar that's going to be feeding on a particular species or genus of tree or plant. So they're tuned to that plant first. They'll be hanging around that particular plant. And many of them have the ability to recognize 
the chemicals that are emitted by the plant when the caterpillar chews on a leaf, for example, tuning into the smell, their antennae smell, and they'll be looking for damaged leaves. And when they get that close, then they use visual cues to look for the caterpillar. What, what about vibrations? Can they detect vibrations? Well, they sure can, yeah. So there are many uh, beetles and, and some lepidoptera, for example, that bore into, into wood. And um, most of the wood-feeding beetles and, to a lesser extent, lepidoptera, are not actually feeding on the wood. They're feeding on fungus that uh, is inside the wood. In a general sense, I think that the braconids are typically looking for that fungus and for the feces with smell. And um, that gets them close. And then once they're there, they have these specialized organs, usually on their hind legs and on their antennae. And they use those to feel vibrations. And you have antennae in the front and legs spread wide apart in the back. They can actually absolutely precisely locate the, the beetle larva that's inside the wood. They, then they drill through the wood with their ovipositors. Or even more interestingly, the biggest ones, like Megarissa, which is an enormous parasitoid hymenopteran in the sister group to the Braconids, the Ichneumonidae, it exudes an enzyme and presses its ovipositor into the wood. Its ovipositor is about as thin as a horsehair. And the enzymes break down the lignin and uh, cell walls of the wood, and it just churns the wood into butter until it reaches its uh, host we were working on that for a little while, trying to find the enzymes, find the gene that produces the enzymes, and then clone that into uh, bacteria so that it could produce on an industrial scale lies wood for uh, alcohol production. But it became too complicated. It looks like, in fact, there are several genes and several enzymes involved. Uh, so, so you guys never identified the set of enzymes that... That are responsible. Well, we we found one enzyme and um, we saw that it worked, but it don't, didn't work efficiently enough. And we figured there were other enzymes too. So that's one case. But you could every species has a different story. Basically, they're just diverse as possible. So, Michael, I I you know kind of grew up I think in uh, <laughs> in the time when um, the the lore was that um, that beetles were you know, far and away the most diverse uh, group of insects or maybe even the most diverse group of animals on Earth. And um, I think most biologists are familiar with Haldane's famous quote, you know, when asked about what he's learned about the nature of the world, he said something along the lines that, you know, he learned that God had an inordinate fondness for beetles. But am I correct that the the thinking has now changed and that the Braconids are actually more diverse or thought to be more the most diverse group of insects? You're correct in that it, it, we no longer think beetles are the most diverse group. It switched from beetles to hymenoptera, that is, you know, bees, wasps, and ants. And there was an interesting publication on that. And people for a short time thought that um, hymenoptera were the most diverse, followed by um, beetles and diptera. But uh, there's been a lot of work done now barcoding insects in uh, uh, the Barcode of Life project at the University of Guelph. And um, now we're absolutely convinced that diptera are much more diverse than both the hymenoptera and the beetles. 
And and how many fold more diverse are flies than wasps, do you think? Uh, yeah, again, we're still guessing on that, but I would say it's like um, flies were 100, Hymenoptera would be 60 or 70, and beetles would be around 50. So it, Paul Herbert uh, at, at uh, the University of Guelph, at the Center of Biodiversity Genomics, I think it's called, he did a prediction that one family, the Cessid gall flies, have two million species. This was published about 10 years ago. That's just one family. There's hundreds of families of diptera, just um, amazingly diverse. So one thing that really fascinates me about that is um, it seems that some of these very species groups are also parasitoids. So either in terms of like attacking galls or um, attacking other insect host species, is that a fair generalization? Is is there something about the parasitoid parasite lifestyle that sort of favors this kind of hyperdiversity? You could say that. Uh, it depends on how you consider gall flies, for example, cessed flies. They're mostly gall makers, so they'd be more like a parasite, really. They don't kill the tree. They just live on the tree. But in, in the case of the Hymenoptera, other than the ants, it's the parasitoids that are the most diverse. So there must be something going on there. The other thing that seems linked to diversity is uh, the haplodiploid lifestyle where females are diploid and males are haploid. We're not sure, uh, or at least I'm not sure, what kind of advantage this gives them. But some of the most diverse groups of flies, wasps, and uh, some other groups are, are haplodiploid. So there's a certain, certainly a correlation there. Let me float a, an idea that kind of follows up on Cam's question about diversity and maybe the intimacy of these parasitic or parasitoid lifestyles. So so does that drive diversification because it also requires sort of extreme specialization to to exist within the tissues of another organism, you know, either a plant or an animal? And, and something about that requires extreme specialization in a way that drives macro diversification of clades. Well, that would make sense. Uh, if you look at the uh, parasitoid lifestyle, they're very host-specific, usually with uh, one or just a very small handful of species. So the correlation is certainly there. So you have um, a tremendous diversity of beetles and moths and butterflies and, and flies. And so you have this enormous diversity of potential hosts. It uh, lends itself to a tremendous species diversity in the, in the parasitoids. You do have, we do have generalists parasitoids in um, the uh, Hymenoptera, and we find that those generalists are not very species-rich. So uh, that also lends credence to your thought. So if we had to put a number, a ballpark estimate, how many, how many different insect species do you think there actually are right now? If we just took everything together and combined them and had to, you know, come up with some estimate for a total number, do you do we have such estimates? Well, we have lots of estimates, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has one. <laughs> Even I do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, you know, typically uh, numbers like uh, six to 10 million are published. And now if you look at the literature, most people are saying it's, it's 10 million. But uh, right now, there's a, a group of us uh, working on 
insects based in Costa Rica, where there's been a tremendous amount of research done by Dan Jansen and his wife, Winnie. And uh, they've been malaise trapping insects and rearing Lepidoptera, rearing caterpillars for uh, 40 years and have uh, barcoded literally millions of specimens. And um, so we now have a fairly good handle on how many insects there are in Costa Rica, at least in the far northwestern corner of Costa Rica where Dan and Winnie work. So I've been crunching numbers from their malaise traps and, and rearings. And the number that I come up with is 30 million species of insects, which would then mean something like 50 million species of terrestrial arthropods. And this is uh, even larger than uh, some of the biggest numbers that have been proposed. And uh, I'm quite convinced, and, and a lot of people that work with Dan Jansen and the tremendous number of species that he's barcoded in Costa Rica are in accord with me. To be clear here, are, are you suggesting 30 million species in Costa Rica or are you using the Costa Rican work to extrapolate to the world? Yes, uh, looking at Costa Rican work to extrapolate to the world. Maybe walk us through that extrapolation process because that's really interesting. So how, how do you study the diversity in one place like that and then extrapolate to much bigger geographic regions? This is still a work in progress, but what we're doing is looking at the number of species of a very species-rich group of reconnets. This is the microgastrinae, and they attack caterpillars. So there are about, in Dan's little corner of Costa Rica, there are about 1,400 species of these microgastrine reconnets. So he's reared a thousand of these, and he's malaise trapped a thousand of these, more or less. We looked at the overlap between the ones that Dan has reared versus the ones that we uh, have captured in malaise traps, and they hardly overlap at all. They overlap like about 20%. So using that, we can predict how many are yet to be reared, and we get a number of something like um, uh, 4,000 species for Dan's little area of Guanacaste in Costa Rica. Now, Guanacaste has about uh, 60% of the butterflies and moths and trees of Costa Rica. So we can then extrapolate by using that ratio, um, presuming it's the same for microgastrines. And, and Costa Rica has about 4% of the trees and butterflies and moths of the world, these groups that are well studied. And so we can use that number to extrapolate to the world from microgastrines. Then we've, uh, in multiple parts of the world, looked at what proportion of the microgastrines there are compared to all of their insects. And using that number, we can then predict the number of insects in the world. This might be a good place to sort of transition and, and talk a little bit about the, the sort of traditional ways that taxonomists describe species based on primarily either on morphology or uh, genetic differences. And can you maybe just give us a little brief overview of this kind of traditional process of 
identifying what a species actually is? Well, it, it really differs from group to group. So we're talking now about how taxonomists that work on very species-rich groups go about doing their taxonomy. And uh, when I started doing this, it was entirely uh, based on morphological evidence. And uh, unfortunately, in the Braconids, we don't have a really nice tool like male genitalia that act as very good species delimiters in, in other groups like Lepidoptera and, and Diptera in, in moths and butterflies and in flies. We, we uh, don't have that very nice character suite uh, like that to see what's different between different species. What we used to do was go uh, ask various museums across the world to send us all of their specimens in genus X. And uh, we put those all uh, in our collection and look at them one by one and group them. The yellow ones here and the blue ones there and the big ones there and the small ones there and start to write a, a key of some sort that would help to sort them out. We just basically visually try to separate all those that are different. So when it came down to um, specimens that look sort of similar, we would simply make a guess and say, oh, well, okay, I'll split them right here. And other people would lump them there. So it was very much uh, guesswork. In the case of the Ichnomonoidea, which is part of the Braconids, and Ichnomonids make up the Ichnomonoidea, the error rate there was over 50%. And, and by error rate, you mean you mean what? Oh, by error rate, I mean, this is now in retrospect, we have more uh, molecular data that allows us to test our old species concepts. And we now know that what we used to do was lump species together. That's one sort of error. The other sort of error is splitting species up so that you call the same species several different names. And then there are cases where you both lump and split. So the species is all over the place. So uh, actually, this is what turned me on to using molecular data. I did a, a big revision for my PhD thesis. This took me eight years to actually publish, three years to do my PhD, but I needed to travel to uh, all the major museums in the United States and Europe in order to look at type specimens to compare my species concepts with the type specimens. So it was a very expensive and time-consuming um, production. So then, I don't know, 10 years ago, I did a revision of the same group that I did my PhD on, but used molecular data. And I discovered how horrible my species concepts were. And my error rate there was 50, 50%. That must have been a shock. <laughs> I would think I was depressed for about two weeks. And then I thought, well, Eureka, <laughs> you know, and it changed my whole mind. I mean, it so thoroughly made me uh, convinced that the, the molecular data are far richer and, and more precise than the morphological data. So maybe for the listener, can you describe the, the molecular approach? So what do you do? What, what sorts of sequences do you get and how do you use them to determine whether you've got good species or not? Well, the molecular approach is uh, basically uh, using one gene. It's called cytochrome oxidase 1, and it's a uh, mitochondrial gene. We use a, a portion of that, the barcoding. Uh, so we take a leg off of an insect, typically, and obtain cytochrome CO1, I'll call it, and um, 
we get a readout of its 658 base pairs. And now there are four different nucleotides that are there. So it's, there's an enormous amount of variation. And it turns out that in most groups of insects and animals for that matter, the barcoding region of, of CO1 is pretty species specific. There's a little bit of variation, but there are big gaps between species and very little variation within species. So uh, they're good markers for species. They use the term barcoding because this long set of nucleotides is basically like a barcode you'd see in a supermarket. This is something that Paul Hebert, who invented the idea, came up with. So I guess I'm kind of curious uh, a little bit about, about CO1. So cytochrome oxidase 1 is a, is a mitochondrial gene. And... You know, so my understanding of like what makes a good a good marker for delineating species is that it should be neutral, so it should evolve under sort of neutral processes, and it should be conservative enough that it's not changing too fast, but it should have enough variation that it sort of falls in this like sweet spot where, you know, it becomes very species specific. Um, but then it's it's also tied up within this very important uh, organelle, the mitochondria, which is presumably under pretty strong natural selection for, you know, maintaining various uh, metabolic associated processes. So does CO1 sort of check all the boxes as far as we know, or are there reasons why, you know, other markers potentially might be better down the line in retrospect? Well, um, CO1 is the best one that we've uh, discovered to this point, um, and it works for the vast majority of animal life forms. There are some groups that it doesn't work for, and then um, other genes have been searched for to, to work for those particular groups. But yeah, that uh, CO1 checks all the boxes in most groups. And what convinced me of this, and it's convinced other people that have worked with Dan Jansen's rearing material. So Dan sends me a thousand specimens from his rearings, all of which have been barcoded. What I typically do then is I look at the barcodes and separate the specimens based on their barcodes, put them into separate little containers, little trays inside my collection. And then um, I look at them for morphological conformity. You know, So the CO1 is telling me that's one species and I look at them to see if morphologically they look at one species. And if they don't, I kind of separate them inside that box and look again. And then I um, look at the biological data. Now, that's an interesting thing that we have with Dan's reared material is that they're reared from different caterpillars. And all those caterpillars have been barcoded and identified to the species level. So we can then see if, okay, well, that, in that particular uh, box that I thought might be one species, there are, in fact, three different uh, host species of caterpillars. So let's have a look at them that way. And then I look at altogether the CO1 data, the rearing data, and the morphology, and determine whether or not they're species. And in my particular group, the CO1 is over 90% accurate in uh, determining the species. And rarely the morphology combined with the biology will upset that. 
And so collectively, that's is that what we refer to as integrative taxonomy when you're using all of those kinds of lines of information? Yes, that's the, the big hot word now, integrative taxonomy. You know, when you, when you talk about CO1 having 658 base pairs, I, I think immediately, wow, it, it seems like it's become so much easier now to get a lot of sequence data that why, why not use a broader swath of the mitochondrial genome? Why not also include nuclear genetic information? If you include nuclear genetic information, does it conflict with the mitochondrial information or would it increase your resolving power? Well, I mean, if, if we could afford it, we'd do entire genomes for all the specimens. I mean, that's the, in, in fact. Uh, right, right. There's obviously a cost here. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing. I, I think eventually that's what we'll be doing. I expect it'll be very cheap to get whole genomes in a decade or two, um, maybe much shorter time period than that. If you want to get any sort of handle on the 30 million species of insects that are uh, extant, before 30 or 40% of them become extinct, we better do it fast and cheap. And so that's why we've settled only on CO1. But there are some groups where CO1 is not as um, accurate. And in those cases, people are now looking at multiple genes. But typically when you look at those publications, they're not describing 400 species of insects, they're describing 10 or 12 and spending a, a year to, to get that done. So it's not uh, efficient if you really want to describe uh, the life that is yet to be described on earth. You know, when you use like whole genome sequences, you have a lot of information and dealing with that level of that much information, especially if you have different genes telling you sort of potentially different patterns of relatedness among the, the different groups, it can get a bit more complicated and maybe is based on uh, more assumptions where I guess with using CO1, you, you basically have a library of existing barcodes and you generate one for your specimen and then you see whether it matches something that's already in the library or if it's something unique. And then that's a fairly straightforward process than, you know, looking at <laughs> even low coverage whole genome sequencing can be computationally pretty intense. Yeah, absolutely. We've noticed that with uh, phylogenomics. Um, uh, you know, we're getting whole genomes now for organisms, and uh, we can't quite use those to determine phylogenies. What people do is they pick and choose, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds of genes out of the whole genome to do their phylogenetic uh, work rather than the whole genome itself. And so, you know, there's obviously some shortcomings to just using CO1, and you're going to get a handful of cases in any sort of um, uh, taxonomic approach using CO1, where you're going to get CO1 sequences between two groups of potential species that are not quite differentiated, and morphologically, you won't be able to tell. And, uh, you know, you have to sort of almost guess, so these are two different species, or it might be one species. So you, we have a choice to make. We can either dive into that particular problem and solve that one species problem, spending a lot of time and effort and money, or we can do massive amounts of work and get most of the species resolved 
with just certain problems. So it's a it's a, a matter of what you, one wants to do. Does one want to describe the bulk of uh, life on Earth in a short period of time? Or does one want to solve these smaller species problems first and go piece by piece and take what I estimate to be 4,000 years to finish the job? <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time. So um, what I was going to ask is the distinction between taxonomy and phylogenetics. And and maybe this is just because I'm, I'm also confused on the distinction. But my understanding is for what taxonomy is primarily delimiting what are different species, whereas phylogenetics is actually more interested in what the relationships are and trying to, for example, uncover the most recent common ancestor of different groups. Is that a correct distinction between the two fields? Well, yeah, that's fairly accurate. I might uh, just add to that, though. And taxonomy is also not just about differentiating species and delimiting species. Uh, it's also about how to cut up the pie. For example, in groups that I work with, I have a particular, working with a particular genus, I see that there are three or four distinct groups within that genus. Well, by distinct, I mean monophyletic. And by monophyletic, I mean they have, they share a common ancestor, a unique common ancestor. So I have the option then of breaking that genus up into four other, four new genera, or one old genus and three new ones, or I can keep it all as one genus. So making these higher level decisions is also basically a thing of taxonomy. And in this aspect of taxonomy, these higher level taxonomic jobs are dependent on uh, phylogeny, but they're still taxonomic decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like there's some kind of a large area of overlap there between taxonomy and phylogeny and that, you know, in, in a significant way, they're aimed at, at similar ends. They are. I think that uh, phylogeny is basically uh, the evidence that one uses um, to make higher taxonomic decisions. Okay, so... Um, Michael, you've alluded to some of the issues that I think we're about to discuss, but you have published a really interesting paper in 2021 in the journal Zookeys. And uh, we, we became aware of you and your work by reading about this uh, from this really interesting article by Brooke Jarvis in, in Wired Magazine that sort of laid out, you know, what, what that paper was about and the ensuing controversy, which was relatively intense. And... Uh, Let's just talk about what you did in that paper, and I'll just say you identified around 400 species of braconid wasps from Costa Rica, but you did it in a way that seemed to set off lots of resistance, if not even vitriol, among the taxonomy community. So, so what did you do, and why was it so controversial? Well, typically what um, descriptive taxonomy like that article does is it describes species morphologically and includes an identification key. So the, an identification key would be something like several different couplets. The first one would be over six millimeters in length or less than six millimeters in length. And that would take you to 
two different places on the key. The so-called dichotomous key. Which can have trichotomies in it, but that's still a dichotomous key for some reason. So everyone does that if you're going to do descriptions. And the second thing they do is they do uh, a little morphological diagnosis. Um, this species can be separated from all other species in this genus, in this country, with the following combination of characters. And they list a, a short a list of five or six characters that allow you to distinguish it from other species. And then that's followed by often a full page or two pages of details on the number of bristles that are on the prothorax and the sculpture of the propodium and the... So this is very traditional taxonomic approach. This is the old taxonomic approach. Instead of doing that, what I did was I looked at the CO1 the sequences for each species and presented a consensus sequence for all the specimens that I thought belonged to that species. And then I took a uh, picture, an image of that, uh, the holotype for that species, and uh, that was pretty well it. I just left it at that. Now, people can identify those species, you know, if they have specimens in, in, in that in any of the genera that I dealt with, they can simply obtain CO1 and um, compare it to more or less blasted on bold, which is the database at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics, and they'll get an automatic identification if they have a specimen of a species that I described. So it's extremely uh, efficient in, in, in terms of being able to identify specimens. Now, if it were the other way around and you did a morphological key, you would never know if you arrive at a particular endpoint in the key, if that's your species or not, without carefully reading the um, description. And even then you wouldn't be sure because there might be, because you only have a small number of the species in a particular genus, you would have no idea. So that's the, the problem. People in these very species-rich groups, never know if they're arriving at the correct answer. Okay, so so this sounds really reasonable to me, and it sounds like the kind of high-throughput method that you need for groups that are speciose and for groups that you fear maybe losing biodiversity, and so we need to know now. Why was there so much outrage about this paper and this approach? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe let's just talk about some of the, you know, the complaints. So, so there were a number of essays that were written and published in different venues by different groups of taxonomists that were sort of decrying this idea of identifying a bunch of new species based on a, you know, a consensus sequence and a, and a photograph. Let, let me just read you a quote from Zamani et al., they say, overall, Sharky Baker et al. and Sharky Brown et al. are asking taxonomists to abandon their own scientific and intellectual goals because the requirement of research scholarship and deep thought is inconvenient. While we do believe that barcode clusters are indeed useful as grouping statements, there is no compelling reason why they should be described as species. Quite the opposite, we present compelling reasons for not doing so. I mean, to me, that's like pretty strong academic language. And uh, you can just sort of feel the the weight of their their emotions about this and and that just surprises me because your approach seems so so reasonable yeah there has been uh, an emotional response there's no question about that so 
why do people have emotional responses? People have emotional responses because they feel threatened. And I think that it's very difficult for people to switch paradigms, to switch, you know, um, decades of their own research and work and admit to themselves that what they've been doing is um, not the right way to do things. So that, that, that's, I think, the, the source of the problem. I read something not too long ago about, about Einstein when he presented his uh, EMC squared uh, theory. I think there were a hundred physicists who wrote a paper in a major journal calling him out for being, you know, just horribly wrong. And he was right, of course. And I think the point of that is that whenever there's a paradigm switch or a potential paradigm switch, we're not, we're not sure how this molecular thing is going to go people feel uh, threatened. But at the same time, it sounds like you may have anticipated that some of these critiques were coming because I noticed in the introduction to your 2021 paper, you, you, you include in the introduction some of the, the sort of critiques and explicitly list them and address them, which I thought was really unusual. I, I, I hadn't, maybe because I don't read taxonomy literature as much as I should, but I found it unusual to see in the introduction of a paper sort of the anticipation of the criticisms that were coming and, and addressing them. So is, is that fair? Did you anticipate that there was going to be some pushback? Well, there was a previous uh, publication, um, a graduate student of mine, Sarah Mayerato, published a paper using the same methodology in 2019. But because she described something like 19 or 20 species, uh, it wasn't very threatening. And there wasn't much of a to-do about it. But enough of a, a backlash that I was familiar with what would come after this big paper was published. So that's why I was a little bit prepared. And the other thing was that I had sent that paper to several different journals in various formats, or at least one other journal. And uh, it was vehemently rejected. So that also got me uh, into a point of being a little bit defensive at the, in the introduction. So in some of the response papers that I, I read to your 2021 paper, and I guess also the 2019 one, I heard the, read the phrase quite often, quote unquote, taxonomic impediment. What, what does that mean? Well, it means two things, really. The fact that we, we do not have a methodology to deal with the tremendous diversity of species that are yet to be described. So that's the, the first impediment is, well, what's preventing us from doing that? What's impeding us from doing that? And, you know, typically taxonomists will say, well, we don't have enough money. That's what's impeding us. Or we don't have enough taxonomists. That's what's impeding us. Or we can't collect in these countries. That's impeding us. Those are the standard reasons for that part of the impediment. The other impediment is if you want to describe a pile of new species, you have to look at type specimens in various museums and to visit those museums and look at the specimens and compare them to, to yours is extremely expensive and time consuming. So the taxonomic work that has already been completed is in fact impeding progress that we're trying to make today. So there's sort of uh, two different angles to impediment. You know, one of, the, one of the other complaints about the barcoding approach 
to taxonomy is that it's elitist, right? So it requires access to machines and money that, you know, maybe many scientists in many parts of the world where biodiversity is the greatest, but they don't have access to that. But it almost feels like what you just said is that there's a, a kind of elitist angle to doing traditional taxonomy in the sense that it requires lots of travel and time and money to go see all the type specimens. It is, and I, I, uh, I, I don't get that at all. Everyone in taxonomy is now telling us that we have to do the uh, integrated approach, which means using uh, morphology and typically multiple genes to delimit species. This is the standard now, the new standard. And of course, that's uh, even much more expensive than a strictly uh, CO1 molecular approach. The other thing is that there's a um, new tool now put out by Oxford Nanopore called Minion Technology. And this costs about $1,000 and uh, a bit more for the ingredients that you need. And with that, you can barcode tens of thousands of specimens. Yeah. So, and and I may have missed this in in some of the the critiques and the 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 back and forth with the controversy regarding your 2021 paper. But one thing that you know I had sort of pounded into my head when I was looking at uh, phylogenetic trees was that these trees represent hypotheses for what we think are the relationships among these different these different taxa. And isn't it the same for taxonomy to, to say that, you know, we are using these DNA barcodes and we're making we're putting forth a hypothesis that that these are actually different species. And if people want to, you know, pursue this further and test whether this is the right hypothesis or not, you know, they're they're more than welcome to do so. But as a as a sort of a first step in you know, proposing potential differences based on some evidence, in this case, CO1 and a photograph, that seems fairly reasonable to me if it's framed in the context of, you know, with some uncertainty that, that we're hypothesizing this is, these are differences as opposed to saying, you know, we are 100% confident that these are, you know, true species. Is that a, a fair way of depicting kind of the, the approach? Well, Cameron, you're... Um generalizing my research much better than I am. Uh, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're making it very clear to, to uh, listeners. So that is uh, uh, very accurate. And I, I just um, wrote and published a paper about a month ago on Costa Rican ichneumonids. And I said exactly that in the introduction to that paper. I talked about several species where I thought the CO1 data and the rearing data and the morphological data were not convincing. And I said, just as in any science, we have some strong hypotheses and some weak hypotheses. And uh, I pointed out some of the weak ones for future investigation. Oh, good. Yeah, that to me seems, it just seems very reasonable, but I'm not a taxonomist and I know taxonomy and phylogenetics and systematics has a uh, sort of a long history of you know people being quite ornery <laughs> and having lots of disagreements yeah we do have the reputation don't we yeah and why is that do you think 
Well, my my feeling not being a taxonomist is that, you know, when I look at, let's say, for example, systematists, it feels like it's very methodologically oriented. And so uh, different groups gravitate towards different methodologies, you know, maximum likelihood versus Bayesian. And they have strong reasons, you know, why they choose one or the other. And um, and so then the disagreements often arise because, you know, you're using one approach and I'm using a different approach. And, and then these camps form. And then I think what happens is that to to acknowledge that somebody's using a different method than you suggests maybe that what you're doing could be wrong. And, and that may be very threatening and, and that might lead to a lot of the acrimony between them. But from as an outsider, it's like, well, shouldn't you just use both approaches and <laughs> see if they tell you the same thing? And if they're different, you know, why are they different? I, I've never really fully understood it. I've just kind of been fascinated. Yeah, well, it gets to be quite um, complicated. And uh, if you're going to do parsimony and maximum likelihood and every other possible thing, then you have thousands of different ideas and it just becomes super complicated. You said both, but you could do very intense morphological data and add that to the uh, CO1 approach, the barcoding approach, but it would take forever. So uh, my personal feeling, taxonomy for since the time of Linnaeus was based on just a typological approach and experts in the field would say this is a genus and another expert would say this is a genus and a third expert would say this is a genus and they'd all disagree with each other and there's no empirical test to decide from the three which one is the best so it's basically driven by um, how popular the uh, or how important the the uh, taxonomist was. So this, I think, set the stage for acrimony in, in taxonomy from the get-go, and we're just carrying on the tradition. But in, in a lot of ways, then, the, the CO1 approach is also kind of, kind of is very egalitarian, maybe, in that way, because, you know, anybody can go into the field, collect some specimens, barcode them, and, and find differences, and not be an expert. Is that threatening? to traditional taxonomy? I don't know. No, nobody's doing that yet. Yeah, we don't really see that quite yet, but I can see that coming. So I worked at the Canadian National Collection and people from all over the country and all over the world to some extent would send specimens to me of braconids and I would uh, identify them. And I'm sure I did a horrible job because I didn't have molecular techniques, but uh, nonetheless, I did the best I could. And uh, now these very same clients could simply obtain the CO1 very inexpensively and um, search for, uh, you know, put their sequence on bold and search. It just takes seconds and get a identification as close as anybody could possibly get one. So it would certainly tell them what family it is. It would almost certainly tell them what genus it is. And if there were species uh, data in the bold database, then uh, they would get a species name with some sort of idea of how likely that species name is to be an accurate one. So yeah, it's, uh, it's got to go that way. I'd like to 
asks some maybe even more forward-looking questions that sort of build on that. And, um, you know, it feels it feels to me like there's, there's two super major problems here, right? One is that, that we know that there's a lot of species out there that we haven't identified and we need, we need to do that. And the other is that, you know, we're in the Anthropocene with lots of ecological changes stemming from climate change and changes in land use and that sort of thing. And so that we know that a lot of biodiversity out there is at risk of disappearing soon. And so it's really pressing to do this now. And if you had to envision like the highest of high throughput ways to approach the species identification and taxonomy problem, what would it be? You know, if you, if you were given a bunch of money at NSF to, to spearhead this, what would you do? Well, it's being done now more or less here in California. In California, amazingly, the state government has uh, given taxonomists in the various institutions and universities in California $10 million over three years to inventory the insects of California. And that's not nearly enough to do a complete job, but it, it'll put a big dent in insect diversity of, in California. Various institutions, which are spread throughout California, uh, set up teams to collect insects, malaise traps, so you're catching thousands of insects. And they're also using sweep nets and you know various kinds of traps to catch insects and sending these all to Bold and having them barcode the entire samples. And the result will be some several million specimens being uh, identified to a barcode level identification. So that's uh, the, the best that can be done at this point in time. Okay, so it sounds like you're you're advocating sort of, you know, expanding the scope of this effort to do barcoding and using easy-to-get genetic information. Are there other crazier ideas on the horizon that would involve other, like, non-genetic approaches? Like, I could imagine high-throughput imaging that used AI systems to try to help taxonomists do rapid descriptions or see subtle differences among among insects that are hard to pick up by by the human eye. Is that in the offing? Yeah, there are several groups uh, around the world that are working on this right now. There's a group in Germany that's doing it, and there's another group in London, Ontario, I believe, that's doing the, the same thing. And there are probably others that I'm not aware of. And so what they're doing is... Um, at the same time that they're barcoding, they're also imaging the specimens and then trying to use uh, AI to be able to identify the insects automatically. But the problem is the first thing that they have to do is decide on species limits. And then they have to teach the AI system, okay, these are the limits of the species. But that, of course, would be well, wonderful. The other thing they're doing is um, environmental DNA and metabarcoding. So people are collecting samples in the air of all kinds of insect parts that are floating around and then barcoding whatever's caught in the, in the filter. And so with a good library in the future, we'll be able to inventory insects uh, rapidly using techniques like that. Or the other things they're doing is metabarcoding malaise trap samples. So you take the malaise trap sample, and instead of separating each specimen, putting it in a different well for molecular analysis, you grind up, this is simplifying, but you grind up the whole shooting match 
and um, bark at everything that's in it. So you'll never know, you'll never be able to associate necessarily the specimen with the barcode, but you'll know all the species that were caught in that malaise trap. And this will allow us to very quickly differentiate different ecosystems or, you know, ecological areas. So these are things that will become more prevalent. Yeah. So looking also, I guess, more to the future, I mean, you know, I think we haven't talked about it enough. We've touched on it. Art mentioned, you know, being in the age of the Anthropocene and and you've mentioned, you know, the the pressing need for quantifying all of this biodiversity that has yet to be described. Um, I'm curious, as you look to the future, do you see kind of the the next generation of taxonomists coming? Is it a is it a field that is generating a lot of excitement among? you know, graduate students and, and people interested in, in going into this line of research? Or, you know, do you feel like a field that has kind of been underappreciated and maybe not as popular as, as other fields of biology? Well, uh, even you, uh, Cam, have probably read about articles where taxonomists are whining about um, how the, the field is degenerating and uh, we're losing taxonomists and we're losing expertise and we're not training the next generation. That's um, been something that I've heard my entire career and there's some definite truth to that. And uh, in the United States, I don't see any um, renaissance uh, coming at all. But the good news is that in Europe, things are really um, coming along very well. So you have massive projects in Norway and in Germany, other countries as well, where tens of millions of dollars is being invested uh, into barcoding and other molecular approaches and AI for taxonomy. They seem to really be much more concerned about the loss of biodiversity and the impact of humans on the environment than we are here in the United States. I expect that this very um, phenomenon will um, infect the United States in the, in the near future. And uh, we can expect the same thing to happen here. You know, you, you need a few key people to cause a revolution, you know, at a bureaucratic and institutional level. Well, it sounds like we need the California approach, but, you know, elsewhere. It'd be nice to get the, the money and the people and the institutions to, to activate on that. Okay. Well, thanks, Michael, so much. That was a really fun conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. We really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for your, both of your insights. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write us at info at bigbiology.org. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Molly McGid for producing the episode. Thanks also to Dana Dela Cruz for her amazing social media work. Keating Shamiri produces our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello. 